While you were gibbering on, I was thinking about something else. Welcome back to Replaying Favorites, a podcast where two friends last week finally agreed that they both loved the same movie. We're going to try to do it again this week. I'm Brie Callahan. I'm Chris Kelly. And to try to recreate the magical fire that we found last week with Hairspray, we are going to watch The Big Sick. It's a 2017 American comedy, romantic comedy, directed by Michael Showalter. It is written by Emily Gordon and Kamel Nanjiani. It also stars Kamel and Zoe Kazan, who takes the role of Emily, uh, and also stars Holly Hunter, Ray Romano. And because I love her so much, I'm going to give her, I'm going to bump her up a little bit in the cast, A.D. Bryant. Um, it's about Camille and Emily's real life falling in love, falling out of love, and then the tragic illness that maybe does or does not bring them back together. Uh, Chris, do you know anything about this movie? I was aware of this movie when it came out. It's one of those movies that sounded good and that I vaguely intended to see eventually, and then it kind of fell off. It's kind of like if you imagine a shelf of books and you know you're not going to get to all those books. I feel like The Big Sick is maybe on a lower bookshelf, but it's on the shelf. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. So yeah, we are going to watch The Big Sick. It's a fun one. I think it was like one of those like early movies that was released by Amazon when they were trying to like break into movies, uh, which is ultimately how I saw it. But I got to tell you, we're going to watch it critically as we always do. But this is one I don't think I have any notes for. Well, I hope you come up with something because we have a lot of podcast left. We will find things to talk about about The Big Sick because there are some great jokes. There is some good drama. I think you're really going to like Ray Romano in this movie. I'm going to put it out there right now. That's a bold claim. I'm putting it out there. I think it's his best role. Like I said, I got no notes. So let's go to the break. We're going to watch this goddamn movie and we'll be back after this. See you in a minute. Okay, welcome back. We have watched The Big Sick, a movie that I enjoy and that I actually like cried at a lot this time. So that might be my own feelings about the election or or whatever we're going through when you listen to this. It's about that. Oh. So The Big Sick is based on the true life story of Camille Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon. Uh, Camille and Emily meet and fall in love. She's previously divorced and he is a Pakistani immigrant whose parents expect him to marry a fellow Pakistani woman. After they break up, Emily falls ill and is in a medically induced coma. Kamel navigates the illness with her parents, reaches a tentative agreement with his parents about his life choices, and Emily turns up at a comedy show in New York, and the implication is they get together, in the sense that they are currently married now. So, Chris, what did you think about this movie? Oh, I loved this movie. I'm so glad. I loved this movie. I do have notes. I have a couple of notes, but... Most of them are, can we just watch Holly Hunter be extremely tiny and extremely fierce for another half an hour? Oh, several of my notes are just the words Holly Hunter in all caps. (laughs) It's funny because it's just about Kumail and Emily and then like the people who are around them. Like, I don't know what A.D. Bryan's character's name is. I don't really remember what Holly Hunter's character's name is. And it's just like these people who are in orbit sort of around their relationship But gosh, Holly Hunter is just, this is a tour de force performance. They are so lucky they got her because she is so good. It is insane how sparkling she is. Like, it is as if she is giving off literal sparks at every moment. Yeah. You can't take your eyes off her. She's always doing 
three different things at once. I have lots of notes about just tiny little things that she's doing while doing something else or while someone else is doing something else, just like little physical bits that feel so lived in and specific and perfect. It's I I literally cannot say enough good things about her. Well, let's come back to the fanfic that we're currently writing about Holly Hunter. And let's talk a little bit about the the sort of structure of the movie. So I've seen this movie a bunch of times, but I'm always a little unaware of what happens before Emily gets sick. Because <laughs> it's it's such a traumatic thing that occurs and the whole movie rotates around it. But there is a full 40 minutes of movie before she ever gets ill. So what did you think about the setup and the relationship between Emily and Camille? Like what were sort of your initial impressions about kind of like that first portion of the movie? So I want to preface this by saying, while I knew that Emily got sick, I didn't know that we would lose her for much of the movie. I thought that she would have cancer or something, but still be ambulatory and speaking and doing all of the things. So the hard stop on her character was unexpected. So I appreciate that we got the beginning part of the movie to fall in love with her along with Kumail because we really need that solid foundation. And I want to give Zoe Kazan a bunch of credit for being a like Holly Hunter level presence in terms of yeah. being dynamic and charming and sarcastic and enticing and like all the things that you need her to be without like a ton of time to cement that. She has to make you believe that you would hang out for like, I don't know, a couple weeks, a month in a hospital waiting for her when you haven't known her that long. And she does it. Yeah, they really have an instant chemistry. One of the things I was thinking about doing sort of a deep watch on this is what must the experience be of casting a woman to play your real life wife? It's got to be really intense because they do a ton of very cute, very intense flirting and all the and all this stuff throughout the beginning of the film. It's not totally clear to me how involved Emily V. Gordon was in the shooting of the film. Like, But yeah, Zoe Kazan gets a lot of credit for. I always kind of forget that she's in this movie because I fe I do feel like she inhabits Emily so completely. Like when we were talking about the cast list last week, I was like, oh, who's this Zoe Kazan? Because I totally forgot that like, she's not actually Emily. <laughs> Which I think that's a testament to her performance. <laughs> oh, sure. She's wonderful. I had questions about Kumail initially as a character. So first of all, it took me a minute to sort of gather how fictionalized or not this was because he is Kumail and she is Emily, but she has a different last name and mm. everyone else in the movie has different first names. Like A.D. Bryant isn't playing A.D. She's playing right. a different woman, though she is doing A.D. Bryant's exact stand-up set still. So like little things like that made it unclear to me initially almost whether this was intended to be quote-unquote fiction. Like, I knew it was fiction, obviously, because I'm watching yeah. a movie, not a documentary. But this was so close to reality in so many ways that I almost wondered, I was like, is it worth it that, like, maybe Kumail and Emily have different names just to, like, seal the deal on that? That, like, we wrote a story as opposed to we're doing our life story? I would say that there are parts that feel extremely true to life because they feel very lived in, and then there are other parts that, like, 
don't. For instance, the fact that Kamal is a Uber driver, like I don't think when the two of them got together, like Uber was a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the the weirdest parts of the movie is they do a pretty decent job of casting as Emily, a woman who's about Kamal's age. She's five years younger than him in real life, but that tracks, except for the fact that they are both playing much younger versions of themselves. So like, present day Kumail is playing himself as a much younger struggling comic. And so sometimes it's a little weird because he's like close to 40 and he's living the life of like a dirtbag 23 year old. I had the same question because I was shocked at the state of his apartment when I saw it because (laughs) she says that she's a grad student, but you can be a grad student in your 30s. So that just didn't land for me at all that they were supposed to be younger it wasn't until he got back to his place and he was sleeping on a mattress on the floor and had a full roommate and i was like oh no like you are too old to be living the frat boy life yeah he's clearly supposed to be in his like early to mid 20s i would also like to give a special shout out to huge horrible chicago apartments you can get especially at the time when like this would have been their true to life like you could get a big ass apartment with one roommate and it's just awful. There's a lot of little like shout outs and love to Chicago, like at the beginning of this, which I do appreciate, except for the final scene where he's leaving to go to New York and they're clearly already in New York. Like that is <laughs> <laughs> those exterior shots. The, the movie does a really specific job of setting it in Chicago. And then as soon as he's leaving, they're like, fuck it. We're not going back to shoot exteriors again. I also want to touch on Kumail's initial approach to Emily mm. because I think the movie thinks that he's being charming, and I think she is being charming, and he's being a little bit of a dick. Like, he comes up and he's like, you know, it's rude to heckle a comic. And I know that he's being self-aware, but I also know male comics. I wish that he had taken a different initial tactic or had a different opening line, because I had just enough reflexive recoil to that that I was like, oh, one more draft. But- Here's the thing. I think that's the influence of Emily as the co-screenwriter because he is a male comic and that probably is how he approached her. And it probably was kind of dickish. And I think you see that also with it box ended at the end, which is that Emily actually gets the last line of this film, which I really like. So I think most of the movie is written very sympathetically to Kamal. And I think there are some scenes in which Emily doesn't come off as well, which I think we'll talk about. I think specifically the scene where she freaks out about all the women in the box. Mm -hmm. I would guess that that scene was primarily written by Emily because that whole thing, the whole thing about where she says like, where he writes her name in Urdu and she's like, does this work for you a lot? (laughs) Like is very funny and smacks to me of a woman writing about the scene where her husband picked her up and was like kind of a dick about it. I do also think it's a smart choice in that it establishes that she is intentionally going for someone that she wants a casual thing with. Like, she doesn't pick the best guy at the bar. She picks the lame comic that she will have no problem dumping later, which is her intention. I don't know that I think that's really her intention. I think they're very attracted to each other, but I think she's just also funny. Like, and I, I think that that is why they wind up like having an attraction to each other is because... He's not always the funniest person in their relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But I think that because there is tension later about how she talks specifically about not wanting a serious thing, 
like it was very accidental that she was really attracted to him and i I, is what i took from it oh see i took the opposite which was like the usual sort of dancing around the thing of when you find someone that you're like pretty interested in but you want to be cool and so you're like i'm not really looking for something right now and like what's kind of unclear unless you live in chicago is that like they live on extremely different parts of the city so where he's performing is I'm pretty sure at like Belmont and Clark because there's a bunch of comedy clubs around there. And she lives way down in Hyde Park at University of Chicago. So it's deeply inconvenient for them to see each other. Another thing you should know about Chicago is that I know you as a New Yorker are like happy to get on like eight trains to go see each other. In Chicago, if you live like 10 blocks away, people are like, I guess it's not going to work. Like, like, Oh, I would like to disabuse you of the notion that New Yorkers are happy taking more than one train to see someone. <laughs> I have definitely considered dating someone on the Upper West Side a long-distance relationship. So my read on it, based on the establishing things that the two of them talk about, is that she's just kind of like, yeah, this isn't going to work out because I'm in grad school and I live like far away, so like let's just mm. keep it casual. But I think they have a genuine, almost instantaneous chemistry that they have from her like, whoop, in the crowd. Oh, for sure. I mean, I knew from the initial whoop that they were married. So, yeah. of course, I'm reading chemistry into it. I'm like, well, she's the one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to know, right? Because, like, I think probably Emily and Camille have done a good job of probably writing out parts of their relationship and writing in other cute things or, like, you know, we're probably going to critique some things in this film that we think might not be true to life. I feel like they probably amped up the drama on their breakup to add more struggle into their ability to get back together. And it's not clear to me how much of that was probably in real life, like, because it seems like they just kind of had a, a sad disagreement about, like, their inability to, like, form a future together. But, like, they'd only been together for five months. Like, Emily, calm down. I think timeline is one of the things that I sometimes had questions about in this movie. There's not a lot of good indicators at any point about how much time has passed. This is a movie that begs for holiday decorations. Like, I just want something that's telling me what time of year we're at. Is it snowing? Is it hot? Like, give me something. Well... (laughs) And this is going to be jumping all the way to the end of the film. But like Emily at one point says that they've been together for five months, which is a useful thing. But very late in the film, when AD and that other comic guy say that they're going to move to New York, he's like, "Okay, we're going to move to New York in a week. So Emily wakes up. Camille goes to the party. Emily rejects him. They say they're going to leave in a week. Then he writes an entire one man show, stages it. They put up like posters all around the city. He apparently performs it and then reconciles with his family. And then Emily comes to visit him. And then they're still leaving like the following weekend. And I'm like, how how long has it been? Like, <laughs> I don't well, understand. I would also like to point out, as someone who has moved from a Midwestern city to New York, you don't plan that in a fucking week. Yeah, it's not a thing. <laughs> Establish that we're going to do it in a month and a half. And then the whole end actually makes sense. He also, it's not clear to me how long Emily is in the coma because mm-hmm. when he presents his like board of of uh, badges to her, there's only like 18 of them. And he kind of went like almost every day. So I was like, oh, is she just there for like two weeks? But before we move on, can we talk a little bit about some of the supporting cast? Because everyone here is like doing their best work. We've talked about Holly Hunter a little bit, but they got a whole bunch of like Broadway types as well. Like David Allen Greer is in this movie. For whatever reason, I didn't recognize David Allen Greer. I think there's something about his physicality of being like 
overly energetic and twitchy that I just didn't place him. And I was like, who is this amazing actor? <laughs> they cast a really wide net. Like some people are clearly like people that Camille knows from stand up. And then some people are like Broadway types like David Allen Greer. And then they also just cast this amazing group of Pakistani and Indian and people of descent to play his family. And it is just such a great cast. I agree that there is not one person that I would replace or write out or change. Like, I think yeah. everyone's doing absolute top shelf work. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Holly Hunter, but I want to also point out the woman who plays Kumail's mom. Uh, Zenobia Shroff. She has a lot of really excellent nonverbal work. She gets to mm -hmm. say a lot, but there are also many scenes where she's just reacting, and uh -huh. every single one of them was so perfect that I couldn't stand it. I couldn't take my eyes off her. She's so dynamic. She is so charismatic. You're right. Like, she does benefit in terms of the filming of the movie where she's often in a shot by herself just reacting to something. But my God, it's so good. You know, she's in that role of kind of like the obnoxious mom and also like the obnoxious immigrant mom. That in so many films and like popular culture has been like written to be like really cloying and irritating and she never is that she's always just like that genuine like oh who could it be <laughs> is so funny every time and she rings comedy out of that line she's very funny like um the father who's played by anupam care who has done 500 movies oh my god yeah He's in everything. He's also really incredible, but he gets to do more of sort of like direct comedy where he's like being funny and mm. so that you can see where Kamel gets it from. But she just gets to do, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is. Like she's just, every time the camera cuts to her, you know, you're about to laugh again. And it's so good. And she also can stay really grounded. Like that final scene where Kumail comes back and the whole family is just dead silent to him the entire time. However many reaction shots she has, I think she should have that many Oscars. Like, each time they cut back to her, I was just, like, floored by what she was giving. Yeah, and when she says, you are not my son, like, Oof. that shit cuts deep. Because, like, you know the dad's a big softy, mm -hmm. but, like, man, when your mom cuts you out, but then she makes him the briani and it's fine. Oh, my God. <laughs> that fine, I mean, uh, I will say... His dad gave me my only cry of the movie. Oh, wow. What was that? Which is when he says, uh, text us when you get there safe. I know. <laughs> like, that, like, I mean, the fact that they showed up at all, I was already like, oh my yeah. God, they're actually showing up. But there's something so specific about, like, let us know you got there safe. That was when the floodgates opened for me. Well, because he's like, well, goodbye forever, son. And yeah. I can't hug you. But do text us when you get there safe. Just so like, it's so clear that like, that's the opening that it's not going to be forever. Yeah. And so like, that's why in my recap, I said like, he reaches a tentative agreement with his parents, because like, they also make a lot of point of having Camille have that discussion with Holly Hunter's character about how her family hated her partner. And just like how many shitty family dinners she had to endure in order to make it work. And like, I have to imagine that that is what eventually happened because you see his family at the wedding and like all this stuff, mm. you know, in the pictures at the end. So like, they obviously work it out. And I think the big sick does a really great job of letting you know that like, while there is tension there, it's gonna work out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because like, you love that family so much. Like, they're so great. Oh, my God. Absolutely adored all of them. 
I will say, I wish they had given just a couple more scripted lines to his sister-in-law. Yeah. She ends up being kind of a weirdly silent presence. Like, she's at all the dinners, but she doesn't contribute in the same way the rest of the family does and i was like guys she's she's there why is everyone ignoring her (laughs) like yeah the only thing she has to talk about is like pop culture and about being on snl which is a shame because naveed says like she's my best friend and so like you don't really get a chance to see that level in her she's just sort of like kind of an extra layer of annoying (laughs) but like not in a bad way she's still very charming but she's just sort of like she's not really like sophisticated. I want to be clear that that I find that to be a script problem, not an actor problem. I think that the woman portraying her is doing the best she can with an underwritten role. There are also a whole bunch of young women who come to the Najiani family to try to get a date with Kamal or to try to be paired with Kamal. They are all also equally delightful. I would like to give a special shout out to Vela Lavelle, who plays um, Kaija. She's great. She's the one who like has the talk with Kamel like mm. at the door and she's like, why are you wasting my time? And it's such an, a nice moment of like that woman gets so much characterization and is written so well. Like that's the kind of writing I would have liked to have seen for the sister-in-law as well because she really gets a full character and that woman makes the most of it in a very short amount of time. I was really happy that that scene was there because it sort of retroactively gives justice to all of the women who rotated through those dinners Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's almost part of the plot that they can't have more characterization because Kumail has to see them as one-dimensional and disposable. But giving one woman sort of to voice all of them being like, dude, kind of fuck you for this. I mean, I think two things about that. One... You know, we obviously see it from the perspective of Kamel that, like, he's not really connecting with the part of his culture that deals with marriage the way that they do. And we're seeing that as, like, his struggle. And so it's also nice to see some people on the other side also being like, yeah, this sucks for me too, man. Like, I don't like it any more than you do. And so, like, it's nice to see the other half of that. And there's also kind of a way in which the the women are sort of paraded through as an element of light comedy, like it's kind of a silly thing. So it's also nice to see the voice being given to those women who are coming to the house that like they aren't silly, like they're there for a reason and that he's falling down on the job by like not being direct about like what his intentions are with this whole thing. I also thought it was nice that you could as a viewer imagine him hitting it off with her for real. Oh, she's great. He made the step of not completely invalidating a whole cultural practice. Like he was smart enough and kind enough to be like, in a different world, this could have been a marriage that worked out too. Yeah, she was a great match for him. She was smart. She was funny. And like, she seemed like she would have challenged him. I think what's well done about this movie is that I think this is like Kamel's real experience, but he's also got the job of talking about the idea of arranged marriage to a predominantly white audience, because that is like what most of America and what Amazon Studios and what Sundance is. I think he does a great job of showing how a lot of arranged marriages work out, which is that like, it's someone you don't know at first, but then most people get along. And that you can have a really successful marriage, no matter how it starts, like, A number of my friends are in arranged marriages and they're getting along great with their spouses. Like, so it's just this like, there's a hang up in white American culture about the idea of arranged marriage because it's like, not for love. And like, you have to do all these things. But like, America also has a divorce rate of about 50%. (laughs) So I think on the flip side of that, the script maybe leans a little heavily 
on the marital problems between Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. And I think that Mm -hmm. that is intentionally a counterbalance to these two people chose each other of their own free will and still have trouble. Yeah, that's a good point. But I think it's just, for me, it was a little too much that we had to get really specific with Ray Romano giving a monologue to this child that he doesn't know that well about like, oh, I cheated on Holly Hunter. And I'm like, I'm sorry, this is the person you're unloading on? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way as a counterpoint. All of the arranged marriages in the movie are like quite happy and quite healthy. And the only example you see of a non-arranged marriage is actually like fairly destructive. They get there in the end, but that like they are having a lot of issues around both infidelity, but also like trust and directness and communication and holding on to ill feelings for a long time. And it hadn't occurred to me that that was probably an intentional direct counterpoint to that. But I think that's a good point that you raised. And I would have actually really liked it if there were just some unspoken tension there. And I think that Mm -hmm. Holly Hunter and Ray Romano are both skilled enough that they could have worked in smaller fights that communicated a bigger thing without Mm -hmm. needing to explain what the problem was. I think my biggest problem was that they took the time to really specifically pinpoint, I cheated on her and I'm going to explain it to you what happened and what we're going through. And I was like, I don't, I don't need all this. Yeah. It wasn't that needed. You could have actually just had a sort of marriage that had drifted apart for unnamed reasons. Mm -hmm. Because that last scene where they where Holly Hunter goes and climbs into bed with him is like super cute. And I think it might have even been a little bit more cathartic if there wasn't a clear source of tension that they apparently need to resolve (laughs) that they do not. If their disagreement was more amorphous, then I think the resolution of it wouldn't have felt as unsatisfied. I, I, I wasn't completely unsatisfied. Yeah. But there's something unsatisfying about them having a specific beef and then just sort of putting it aside without a discussion. I mean, I guess you could argue that they've realized in the course of however long it takes for Emily to get better that that is not as important as them sort of pulling together on the same side, but it feels like they need to have a conversation and they don't. We've sort of talked about most of the other actors in the film, except for Ray Romano. So I think I promised you last week that you would learn to love Ray Romano as a result of this film. How'd I do? You know, he wasn't my favorite person in the cast, but that is difficult given the cast that he is in. But he was by no means my least favorite, which is what I would have predicted going in. I think he does a great job. Like the only thing where he's a little miscast is that he is funny when he tells the bad jokes. But Holly Hunter has a line that says uh, he's like he's just super unfunny. Like she makes a real point of talking about how the fact that he's super unfunny And Ray Romano, whether or not you're into like his deal, he's a funny guy. Like he just gets pacing and delivery. He brings up Emily kind of at the party at the towards the end. And he tells a bunch of jokes. He's like, okay, like, you know, you guys might want to talk amongst yourselves as she gets up here because like she's taking her a minute. The only way in which I would consider not casting him is if there was not a specific writing choice to say that this character is not funny. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I think they lean into sort of dad joke stuff for him a lot. Like he has a lot. He was like, Forrest Gump, best movie ever. And like, that is, (laughs) it is funny that he says it, but like the character is not the one bringing the humor to that. It's just hilarious that someone would say that. 
And also, I know lots of people whose partners don't think they're funny. Like, that's just sort of a thing that happens with couples who are like, oh my god, that joke again. And everyone else in the room is laughing. And you're like, I've known you for 10 years and I've heard this dumb shit so many times. Okay, so for me, like, one of the meanest things you can say to somebody or about somebody is that they're not funny. To me, it's like just such a deep cut on him. I find myself like rushing to Ray Romano's character's defense because I'm like, look, he's being funny right there. Why would you be so mean, Holly Hunter's mom character? Uh, they're, listen. <laughs> They're in a big fight right now. It's kind of true. They are in a big fight. So I would also like to give Ray Romano a shout out for being the setup to what I think is the funniest joke in the film, which I think is like one of the the biggest one minute clip that came out of this movie, which is the 9-11 joke. Do you feel ready to talk about this right now? Ray Romano does such a great job in the setup for that joke. I have to tell you, I am horrified at how much I laughed at that joke. It's one of the funniest jokes I've ever heard in my entire life. It's like a three-part joke. It keeps rolling <laughs> because there's the initial setup where you're just like, oh no, this is going to be a joke about racism. And then it's a totally different joke. Like for a movie that is that has as much stand-up in it as it has, there's not a lot of jokes, jokes, jokes. But so help me God, not only have I laughed at the 9-11 joke uproariously every single time I've watched this movie, I have sought it out on the internet so that I can like watch it again and laugh again. It is one of the best jokes I've ever heard in my life. It is really spectacular. It's a fucking dagger between the ribs because like you said, <laughs> you don't see it coming. You, you're you just so, it's so perfectly primed to point you in the wrong direction. Uh-huh. And then he turns you back around with the most inappropriate punchline of all time. Like, (laughs) it's fucking ghastly, but it's so... I have a lot of notes about, like, someone deserves an Oscar for this, and I feel like this moment specifically means that this whole script gets an Oscar. Like I said, I want to give Ray Romano some credit for the setup on it, because he comes into it so bumbling. It sets up the first joke where Kamel's also just confused. Having just seen it for the first time, maybe you were not watching Holly Hunter, who is just dying because her husband is asking this incredibly racist question, but she doesn't know how to intervene. And then it just takes a whole turn. She looks up again when Camille gives the punchline. Like, she's being spun in every direction in that entire scene, and it's so good. Oh, I can't wait to go back and watch just her reaction in literally every scene in this movie. All right, like, we danced around it for a little bit, but my god, Holly Hunter, she's so little, and she is so fierce and so angry throughout this entire movie. I just want to pick her up and spin her around and, like, throw her off in a direction to fight any, like, assholes that get in my way. All right, I need to find the note where I wrote this. So, my note is, Proposal, a movie that is just Holly Hunter shooting down dickheads. (laughs) That scene where she yells at the man in the comedy club and all five foot two of her is ready to jump (sighs) through him... I could have stood up and cheered. And the great part about that scene is that then Ray Romano, like, as a result of her energy, like, gets involved in it. And he's like, this elevator goes all the way down, buddy. <laughs> like, oh. The two of them together are such a great team. But good God, she's also got this moment where they're sort of hashing it out about the fact that he cheated on her before you know that that's happened. And they're kind of yelling at each other and getting into it. She circles around his entire body like a boxer. Her physicality in this movie... 
I don't know that I've ever seen her be better. Mm. She is just physically present in every single frame of this movie that she is in. And she's always been like a good actor in my mind, but I've never seen her as memorable and as like clearly defined as like a fucking spitfire as this film. I have a lot of notes about very specific small things that she does that are like very character oriented. I believe in the same scene where she circles him, she is arguing with him and at the same time fumbling with the phone and she has the phone, turns it over, looks at Mm -hmm. it, turns it over again. And Mm -hmm. there's a really specific way that she is frustrated with him and the technology in different ways. The second Mm -hmm. turning the phone over just sent me over the edge. It's so perfect. There's also... When she first walks into Emily's apartment on the way in, she grabs the sleeve of the coat and smells it. I got to tell you, I know you said that the first time for tears with you was with Kamal's dad. But for me, for whatever reason, watching it this time is that before you even see Holly Hunter, that she puts that blanket up over Emily. Mm. And the shot is so nice. Like you see this just huge thing of momming that happens before you ever see Holly Hunter. Mm. She's so much smaller than everyone else, but she's just got so much energy. And on the counterbalance to that, her level of like fierce affection for people is so strong. Another really great physical thing that shows such an immense level of care when she's leaving... Emily's hospital room and she Mm -hmm. reaches up and she's so careless about I think she's kind of going to stroke Kumail's chin but instead she sort of wipes her hand across his face yeah and it's so cute it's so cute because it is so casual you can see how ingrained into that family he's become that she doesn't even feel the need to be at all careful with him she sort of like smashes his face it has all of the love behind it every drop of love in her body is in that hand motion it is a weird thing but is her seal of approval. Mm -hmm. I love that scene. As soon as you started to describe it, I knew exactly what you were talking about because it's so great. There's a moment just a little bit after that when they have a talk and he says, this is probably the last time I'll see you. And she grabs his face and says, like, I hope not. Well, that's another interesting thing about this movie's structure, though, is that part of the building of it is that this becomes an arranged marriage story where Emily's parents choose Kumail, even though Emily is resistant to him. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's essentially what happens. It does still give Emily the agency to be like, no, I don't want this because like, she makes a really good point of just like, I get that everything changed for you. But like, I was asleep, like that time doesn't exist for me. So like, I don't want this anymore. And you need to go and then she has to go back and like do all that research and find the way that he's changed. And then she like gets on board. And I think that's nice. Like, I'm glad that they don't let her parents like strong arm her into like, getting back together with him because he was good. Yeah, I loved that she was that harsh to him upon waking up. I loved Mm -hmm. that slam shut of the door. I wish the end of the movie had been something less dramatic than him moving away and her chasing him. I think that even her just like accepting another date with him. It's a pretty quick trip for Emily, especially since we see everything from Kumail's point of view for the most part. And so I don't know if it's fully earned that she like chases him to another goddamn city just to heckle him at a show. I was like, just we know that they're married, but I would have liked a little more acknowledgement of like, she has some ground to cover emotionally to want to marry this man. I think the movie felt like it needed to do three things. I think they needed to have a scene of Emily meeting someone from Kamel's family 
This is one of the problems of having actors who are 35 to 40 playing people in their 20s, because people in their 20s will legitimately have conversations that are like, so what are you trying to say? Or like, I don't understand why you're here at this theater when like someone in their late 30s is just like, oh, we're getting back together, right? The fact that they don't get back together or have some kind of a resolution in that scene always feels a little strange because like she's come there to say she loves you, man. Get it together. I mean, I think that gets back to my earlier point of like, I kind of wish that they had taken the step of making these explicitly fictional characters and then they might also have felt a little less beholden to include the things that happened to them but that might not make sense for a film script just make it a fictional story and be like yeah we had a similar experience but this isn't about us there are a couple things that i wonder if they weren't true to life only for the reason that they were included there's a scene that i forget about every time because it's fairly unpleasant where kumail just like ruins a man at a drive throughs night like he screams at him for a very long time and then dumps the trash and like does all and like confronts him angrily like in a window that scene just feels so a kind of out of character but be like not necessary i think that that also gets to kumail is not set up as having a lot of friends in this film he has his comedy friends but all of them are only invested in their comedy careers they don't have any personal conversations for the most part and they're competing with each other so there's not a set up person for him to have an emotional vent with about being scared and angry and unsure and all the things so i think that this is like you know straight boy has emotions moment oh that's another example of like there's a totally extraneous scene where like emily has to take a shit i have to imagine that that actually occurred because like it's so long and detailed i think the movie thinks it's cute oh you think it's cute as a person who would never poop in someone else's apartment (laughs) i was absolutely in love with a man who would wait on the stoop in the cold until i was done i have that in my notes as one of the times when I was actually really impressed with how they paved the way for Kumail to be a plus boyfriend material. I gotta tell you, again, I know you don't know how far it is, but the fact that he's like routinely just driving down to Hyde Park to pick her ass up is like, lock it down. <laughs> like, I don't know what her problem is. But like... <laughs> this is, again, a podcast that will frequently dive into Chicago geography if given the opportunity. <laughs> we cut all that from the sting. I cut it out deliberately because it was boring. <laughs> but this is staying in okay we haven't talked enough about ad bryant she's barely in the movie but she's so good one of my notes on things that deserve oscars is ad bryant's delivery of the word wigs which she adds a vibrato to she's talking about an act requiring lots of like props and wigs to let you know how silly wigs are is such a specifically wonderful choice that i was like give her an oscar right now for one word i think she is just an absolute comic presence and i love her in this movie i'm so glad to see her in it every single time i watch it there's something about her sense of humor where you feel like you are making a fun joke with one of your best friends that i Mm -hmm. really love as we've discussed this movie doesn't pose a lot of like close friendships but i think there is something so friendly about her that you can feel the connection between her and kumail even though there is zero in the script to justify it full stop this movie about kumail's relationship there is a lot of stand-up comedy and stand-up comedy culture in this movie arguably more than it needed I was thinking back to your line from a few episodes ago where you're like, not a bad person who doesn't go to people's shows. That energy is like extremely throughout a lot of this movie where like, 
I'm going to guess that since Michael Showalter directed this movie as well, and he did a lot of comedy, and Kamail obviously does a lot of comedy, I'm not sure either one of them saw that de- or were able to recognize the degree to which there was like perhaps a few too many 10 to 15 minutes spent on like the backstage at the comedy club. <laughs> it wasn't really for me, and I don't think it added a ton to the movie. It also would have been a much smarter rewrite to pare it down and just make Kumail's only stage presence be the one-man show that he's been working on. Because then we can see him develop the one-man show, and then when he edits the one-man show to include Emily, it's a bigger deal because that's been his one driving force the whole movie, and nobody cares about your stand-up career anyway, dude. Yeah, I guess that's what I can't decide is like, does this movie think that Kumail is funny? Because the cheese joke about like heroin and Tylenol PM is like not that good. Like his set at the end is like kind of funny. So I don't know if we're also supposed to be like seeing his like development as like a stand up comedian, but I'm not interested in that story whatsoever. I mean, it's also weird because they do a lot of work to make his one man show sound extra pathetic all the time. That's what I mean. Do they think he's funny or not? It seems like everyone in his life is just like, oh no, this sucks, but like don't want to tell him. But I'm like, is he talented or not? Because they also want to take him to New York. They say they want to take him to New York, but they don't think to mention it to him until a week before they're already going. (laughs) I was worried about like, is his roommate going to have to use the security deposit for that? I I was fully concerned. And his roommate's character is kind of a dud in general, but I did feel bad for him only because of how much every character talks shit behind his back. I guess that's what I didn't like about the stand-up culture business that they were doing all the time, because there was another guy, Sam says, or whatever, the guy who does those bits. They talk so much shit about him, and then when he comes off stage, they're like, great set, man, blah, blah, blah. So it just makes them all seem like they're very spiteful and shallow and mean. Yeah, I get being jealous that Bo Burnham got cast on whatever big thing that is standing in for SNL. If they had just tipped a little away from jealousy, which can still be present, and a little more towards like genuine celebration that your friend had a success, that would have gone a million miles towards making this less uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, like, is this a community or is it just a series of catty bitches? And if so, why is Kumail moving to New York with them? Considering that Kumail like, came up through this culture, it didn't seem like he was able to access that as deeply as he was able to like analyze and access like the sort of comedy and funny things, but also like the genuine things about like his home life and his like Pakistani culture. Yeah, it made for a really unsatisfying end when he did move to New York, which again, maybe that really happened. But As an audience member, I was like, it would have been so satisfying if they had reached a mutual understanding as opposed to her having to fly to another city just to reiterate her initial point, by the way, I am still interested. Maybe it's a little too cute by half, but like, I don't know, I guess I'm enough of a romantic. I sort of like the bookend of the two things where she heckles him at the end. That has a feel of genuineness to me that like... I don't know if it happened exactly that way. Like maybe she was already coming out there to like have that conversation with him or like maybe they met up before that. But like that to me feels like maybe it happened. Yeah, maybe. I guess I just it added so much complication, too, because I'm like now you have to be in different cities for a while. Like Chicago geography is one thing, but I know U.S. geography enough to know that Chicago to New York dating is very inconvenient. I got to tell you, I'd rather date someone who lived in New York than someone who lived by the lake. (laughs) It's easier for me to get to the airport. 
Oh my it's God. just it's just true. Ugh, a bus and a train? No. But I would fly on a plane to meet someone. It's fine. That uh, makes it. I like again. I pitch a rewrite of every movie we watch because apparently I think I'm a fucking script doctor. But like, aren't we? If he had gone to her and been like, "Listen, we're going to have several uncomfortable dinners with my family," and invited her over to dinner and like done the Holly Hunter pitch. If this had been about him making a legitimate attempt to like make it work with her in a way that acknowledged that it was going to be difficult with his family, as opposed to just like flying away to a different city and hoping Mm -hmm. like the romantic comedy ending is just like, we're in a different city and we love each other and it's fine. And I'm like, no, there's like big hurdles left. And I would have liked an ending that sort of paved the way of like him inviting her over to like the first uncomfortable dinner with his family would have been a more grounded, realistic thing that I would have liked. Yeah, like, there might not be plates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I have to say, overall, this movie just is good. It's just a good thing. It doesn't harm anyone. It's almost never making someone the butt of the joke that doesn't deserve it. And it's just a good film. Oh, start to finish treat. I absolutely loved this movie. And I am so glad that you proposed it. I do want to say, having gone back recently and listened to several older episodes, we have liked each other's movies before. I know (laughs) we talk about this like we only pitch each other's shitty movies, but like we've liked each other's movies and I don't think that we should downplay that. That's true. We we got on a little bit of a streak where I think what happened is I kind of didn't like two movies of yours in a row and then you really hated one of mine. <laughs> and then separately a different movie was also Cats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it seems like we're probably at the wrap-up place. Chris Kelly, any final thoughts on the Big Sick? The Big Sick didn't go where I thought it was going to go, but I was happy to go with it on every part of this journey. As I said at the top, I fully loved this, and I'm really glad to have watched it. Uh, You did a great job choosing a favorite, because it's one of my favorites now, too. Aw. Well, I'm super glad, and I assume Emily and Kumail are as well. It is a rare movie where there are lines that you laugh at out loud on viewings four or five or six, and there are so many of these in this movie that if you, if you haven't watched it and you've listened to this podcast, like it's on Amazon, like just go watch it. It's just a really good two hours. You can maybe fast forward through some of the stand up bits if you want. There's a lot of good work happening here. There's a lot of good acting and a lot of good writing. And I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. All right. We did it. We replayed a favorite. And that only leaves me with one question, which is what are we watching next week? All right. So. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I can. No, 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 no. I was really nice this week. No. I, I'm not I doing this to be mean. No. no. So I noticed in our very first episode, you expressed a real surprise that I had chosen a sci-fi movie. That's true. Since then, I have given you only what the kids on Tumblr call that gay shit. So (laughs) I think it's important to revisit one of my early super nerdy favorites just to shake things up. This is for the arc of the podcast. This is important for content curation. Okay. And so next week we have to watch Star Trek First Contact. Okay. Do you want to tell me anything about it? Do I need to know other 
Star Trek stuff. I like you know I've never watched any Star Trek, right? Yeah, I I mean I'm really interested to see what reads for someone who didn't watch a lot of Star Trek the Next Generation all the fucking time. Like I feel like I had so much background with all these characters and you do not. So does this movie have William Shatner in it? No, this is a Jean-Luc Picard. We're we're going okay. full Patrick Stewart. Okay, we're going Patrick Stewart. Okay, I feel more comfortable with Patrick Stewart than... I'm not sure you've gotten away from all that gay shit with Patrick Stewart, but fine. <laughs> I get it, but also Star Trek The Next Generation is just nerd shit. Like, it's just... I was such a nerd for this. I'm actually interested to see how I react to it because I haven't watched this movie in decades. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I will watch this big nerd shit instead, I guess. And uh, I'm excited. The thing is, like, I like sci-fi. I don't know how I've never seen any of the Star Trek stuff, but I deeply have not. So I'm sure this will get a warm welcome in my house. And we will see you next week. And if you want to see us before next week, then we're on social media. So you should follow us at replaying favorites on instagram or replaying faves f-a-v-s on twitter and with that we will see you next week (laughs) oh i would never say that our podcast was as good as this movie we are juggling one ball and frequently drop it